She went snow skiing. She went whitewater rafting. She got out on the dance floor at any time. She loved to spend time out in the city and New York and having a glass of wine. She got caught in a riptide in the Outer Banks with her sister and brother. She ordered dining room chairs for me when I was low in funds. Out of uh, our entire family, she had the best style and wardrobe of any of us. She called me when I was in college and said she needed somebody to take her on a vacation, and she took me to Club Med in Turks and Caicos. She never forgot a birthday. She kept in touch with all family members, not just her brothers and sisters, but nieces and nephews. She was very conscious of managing her money. She went to Broadway shows. She always seemed to know when I needed some support with things that were going on in my life. I was always there with a phone call. She loved playing music. She loved anything that made her feel like she was part of living. She was willing to do anything. Climb trees, water ski, cook, hire and fire people that worked for her. She had absolutely no fear of trying new things. She had no problem bossing her siblings around or strongly encouraging us to go along with the things that she wanted to do. No matter what she was going through, she always would say, keep going, girl, or you've got this, being the best older sister that she could be. When I shared with her that all of my sisters were gonna be my, my maids of honor for my wedding, she took it very seriously. It really took control and she was amazing. She had a great sense of humor. She had an insane observational capability. She could notice the slightest variation of a facial expression. She adores our mom and was always extremely protective in making sure that mom was okay. You've just listened to four siblings describe their sister, Erin. Who did you see when you envisioned her in your mind? Was she tall, short, fit, out of shape, white, black, Latino? By any chance did you see her crutches, wheelchair, or hearing aid? Did you see her cerebral palsy? Of course not. How could you, based solely on these loving descriptions? Erin Haggerty died last year at the age of 62. By most counts, she lived an extraordinary life, simply by doing many things that people would call ordinary. This is an examination of not what she did, but how she was seen by strangers, her family, and most importantly, how she saw herself. I'm Bob McKinnon, host of the podcast Attribution, and you're listening to Seeing Aaron Haggerty. This WLIW-FM special program is distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund and Sue and Edgar Walkenheim III. In full disclosure, I knew Aaron. Her brother Pete was a roommate of mine for many years and remains a great friend, as does his sister Mary. His large family, including Aaron, lived on Long Island and would often come to our small city apartment for visits. I saw her several times over the years and from afar could see her physicality slowly deteriorate while her resolve to live a full life never wavered. When younger, 
I had a very good friend named Diane who also had a significant disability. Erin reminded me of her both in disposition and a desire to be seen beyond her wheelchair and physical limitations. Professionally, I've also done some work on disability rights issues. Yet despite what should be an enlightened personal perspective, I've come to see my own blind spots when it comes to this issue. At one point, interviewing the documentary filmmaker and disability advocate Dan Habib for this program, I used the phrase, bound by a wheelchair. Dan politely stopped me and noted that his son, who also has cerebral palsy, sees his chair as a freedom machine. There are many biases we have when it comes to people with disabilities, or as some refer to as differently abled, many of which I've had to confront in producing this piece. So what do we see when we look at disability? Some may see only limitations. Others lift up every simple act as heroic, see every risk as unnecessary, or each struggle as something to be minimized. Many look to their stories for inspiration, while others see this as extractive inspiration porn. People seek solace and appreciation for their own lives by comparing our struggles against those of others. Of course, some may not see it all. Our hope is for the next 30 minutes that you simply see Erin for who she was, through the eyes of those who loved her most, including her mother Joan, sister Susan, Lisa and Mary, and brother Pete. Perhaps it will change how you see others too. This is Joan, Erin's mother. The most embarrassing thing for Erin was when she was in her wheelchair and uh, people would let their children, five, six, seven years old, just walk up to her, stand in front of her and just stare, just stand there and stare at her like she was some freak. And she knew that. Oh, she hated it. She just hated it. This is Erin's brother, Pete. I'll speak for myself personally. It's like, I didn't acknowledge Erin's disability on a daily basis. It was just, she was who she was. And I also had three other sisters and I was acknowledging them as well. We were all just part of this big family mix, but it was impossible not to acknowledge Erin's disability when we were out in the world, right? And we're talking about the seventies and the eighties where people would come up and say, is she retarded? entire families at a restaurant just staring at Aaron. Um, and, and so we had to, we acknowledged that she was disabled and different. And quite frankly, we had to defend against that. And Aaron defended against that. We had people all the time come up and get right in her face and talk to her like, hi, Aaron, how are you doing today? And she's like rolling her eyes like, what? Somebody get this person away from me. We looked beyond it as a family. And I mean, we did. We had to acknowledge it because we were living in the real world, right? And Aaron was out in the real world all the time. She was putting herself out there knowing she was going to encounter those situations that were incredibly uncomfortable. She hated being disabled, absolutely hated. And uh, at one time with a uh, psychologist, she would say, uh, I'm not like, I'm just not like that. And the psychologist would always say, well, you've got to accept this. Well, Erin never accepted being handicapped, never. One time a psychologist said to me, you just are bringing her up terribly. She is going to end up with a discontent and angry. She's going to be an angry person. And you have to start considering letting her realize that she really is disabled. And I looked at the uh, the psychologist and I said, so, okay. She said, I said to her, 
I'll give you an example. I said, so all of us go up skiing. Everybody gets the equipment. And then I said, Aaron, oh, don't, don't you know, you don't need equipment. You need, oh, don't need a, uh, a helmet because you're not going to be skiing. But you can have a wonderful time sitting in the lobby while everybody else is out on the slopes. And I looked at the psychologist. I said, is that what you want me to do with Erin? I said, she'll figure it out. And she actually did go skiing. It was on a ski bike. But she was skiing, and it's like and she just looked was like, I'm skiing too, like everyone else, maybe a little bit differently, but I'm doing it. If I had a dollar for telling Aaron, you really can't do this. You really can't do it. And, and um, nine times out of ten, she wouldn't do it the way everybody else did, but she would find a way and get the satisfaction of, I did it. If I had... A dollar for every time I said to her, you just can't do it. I would be um, in the Bahamas right now having a wonderful time for myself. This is Susan, Aaron's older sister. I really think my mother was also way ahead of her time in how she raised Aaron. I heard a story just this weekend with cousins of mine about how um, they distinctly remember having my mom come over and bring Aaron to lunch at the Mansfield's house. And my mother had taken a, um, like a, a belt or a scarf and tied Aaron around the chest into the kitchen chair and was letting her try to feed herself. And they were all kind of appalled that my mother wasn't spoon feeding her like she was a baby because she couldn't get the food really into her face. And she was really working hard at it. And, and, um, my cousin said, you know, after they left, they were really upset that Aunt Joan kind of made Erin fight so hard. And, you know, my aunt just said she is helping her learn to do it on her own. And, um, you know, I, I think my mom was the one who was willing and just kind of innately knew what Erin needed to develop as the best person she could be. She let her, let her struggle, you know, let her figure it out. She was 10 years old, and she was just learning to be able to walk. And she's on crutches with difficulty. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for her to learn. And she's got to learn. And when she falls, she's got to learn how to get back up again. So that whole summer, she would struggle. And I thought, she's not going to hurt herself because she's falling in sand. And I said, so... That summer, she struggled, went down, never, you know, just determined to do it and get on her feet. So was, we were just about leaving, and my next-door neighbor came in, and she said, I thought she was going to say, oh, you're so wonderful. You know, you have those five children, and this is just a great, she said, you, <laughs> she looked at me, she goes, you are the worst person I've ever seen in my life. And then she proceeded to tell me how I was so cruel to my kids. I think that's a very common sentiment that people have, that people with disabilities or health conditions need to be protected. This is Dan Habib, documentary filmmaker and disability rights advocate. His son Samuel also has cerebral palsy. I asked Dan to reflect on this question of how others see disability, particularly in this context of struggle. I think if you ask people with disabilities or chronic health issues, do they want to be protected? Most would say, no, I want to be supported. I want the technology and the supports and the personal care that will help me feel 
like a whole person, you know, and a person that can be a part of society. That urge to protect is derived from a very, you know, patronizing attitude about people with disabilities that they need to be protected or that they want to be protected. And I just don't, I don't hear that from people with disabilities. It, it feels very, actually very undermining to them. I think that being human means at times suffering and struggling. And I, and I think I've grown more as a human being from some of my lowest moments than some of my greatest accomplishments, you know? And so I think that we should not deprive people with disabilities of the very valuable opportunity and learning experience of sometimes failing or struggling. Does that mean we want everyone to be safe? Sure, but I, I want my older son who doesn't have a disability to be safe. You know, and he's a rock climber. I want him to use the proper gear and take all the proper techniques so he's safe. So I think when it comes to people with disabilities, there's an expression I really love in the disability rights movement called the dignity of risk, the dignity of risk. And it means you give people dignity by letting them take risks like walking to the beach on their own, perhaps without the kind of hovering supervision that some might want. Um, you deprive people of dignity when you deprive their ability to take risks. And it's not always easy and sometimes it's scary for family members, for people that love that person to let them take risks, but that's when they will grow, that's when they will become a whole person. There's so many things that um, she did out of sheer determination. We always came out here in the summertime, and of course, all the other kids were water skiing. And she said, I want to water ski. I said, Aaron, you, you can't water ski. So uh, I said, fine. You got to water ski? Fine. I'll get you on the skis. Got her on the skis, held her. She gets the uh, the rope, and she's holding, to the, holding on to that. And she... Of course, within a couple of feet is holding on, but the skis are nowhere near her. And she did a complete loop around the um, the bay, holding on, and that was sheer determination. And uh, she came back, and she was happy and laughed. She said, I, I, I told you I could do it. I said, yeah, almost. <laughs> She had no fear. I guess maybe because from day one, we allowed her to do as much as we felt was safe. And um, and we knew that she, she was going to take falls, that she was going to definitely get hurt in one way or the other. I think she really thought, like, I'm going to do this because I deserve to have this experience. And yes, I'm handicapped and it might look different, but... I am going to have this experience one way or another. We didn't feel burdened. It, it was just, we just, Aaron was our sister. It's just what you did. There were so many scenarios where it's like picnics at a park and all of a sudden there's a huge hill and we don't have a wheelchair. It was never like, oh, let's get back in the car. We'll go, we'll go find someplace else. It's like, okay, who's carrying Aaron up the hill? How are we getting her up there? And that, you know, trickles down. My son, Jack, almost became a, he may still, a volunteer fireman because he says, I really just know how to throw a, a person around my back and carry them up the stairs. He was the <laughs> yeah. go-to guy who would get Erin out of the car and throw her into the All house. All of them. And she loved every minute of she it. She did. You know? Nephews, Michael and Patrick, too. It's just like everyone oh, who's yeah. had Erin yeah. on their back. Right. At Erin's birthday, her 60th birthday, I... I actually asked the question, who in this room has not dropped her? Because, <laughs> because we all dropped her. It's not like it's a success story by any means. This is Aaron's younger sister, Lisa. 
she just had this ability to make you feel her energy to be included and to go forward with whatever it was she wanted to do, whether it was going into the city or whatever. When you looked in on the outside, you were like, oh, this is absolutely insane. But as I said, as soon as you got within close range of her, you just jumped on her energy. You didn't even bat an eye. It was never no. It was like, okay, well, how are we going to get this? How, how are we going to do this? Her last words to me were, Lisa, live your life. And I think Erin just wanted to live her life. And, and if that meant we bent over backwards and jumped through hoops of fire to help her do something that she really wanted to do, we were willing to do that. Live your life. I'm Bob McKinnon, host of the podcast Attribution, and you're listening to Seeing Aaron Haggerty. This WLIWFM special program is distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Earlier this year, the family held a celebration of Aaron's life in Peconic on the North Fork on Long Island. Over 100 people from around the country came together to share their stories and memories of Aaron. You'll now hear from one of her cousins, and an aide who helped Aaron for several years. Two people came here today. Sky. Yes. Was with Aaron. Through some of the hardest years with Aaron. Yeah. Aaron went through so many AIDS. Sky's the only AIDS. Only AIDS. Only We got her t-shirt one Christmas that was like, we're fired. And on the back, there were like 11 AIDS. And they were all people that treated her like a patient, that they treated her like it was their job. Skye was her was her friend and also incredible. Incredible. Did things that no member of the family could ever do with Erin. Yeah. You got her up every day, dressed her every day, fed her every day, cleansed her. You were like one person with her and we were so grateful. I didn't um I didn't see a disability. I didn't see that. That was my that is my best friend. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I wouldn't miss this day for the world. There was one day that's kind of etched in my memory that has stayed with me ever since I was a teenager. I remember one summer in Garden City when I was there visiting family, my grandmother and my grandfather. Aaron and I were out shopping at Lord & Taylor's. And we had grabbed some outfits and we were being silly teenagers and we were in the change room and trying things on and she looked in the mirror and then she stopped. And I looked at her and I said, what are you thinking? Assuming that she didn't like the outfit that she was wearing. And she said, when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see the person who I am on the inside. She said, what I see is somebody else in a body that is not me. And for a moment, it broke my heart, but then it reinforced for me, and it stayed with me, that Erin really was just a normal person on the inside and was just unfortunately trapped in a body where disability was really just an illusion. She had courage, she had love, and I realized that Erin was absolutely no different than I was. She, to her core, did not want to be disabled. 
did not want to be perceived as disabled, did not want to look disabled, did not want to be disabled. She didn't really like hanging around with people who with disabilities. She preferred to have conversation with anyone. This is Aaron's younger sister, Mary. Aaron always wanted to get out of her own body and that she was not, she would never be satisfied. She would never be happy because she was always trying to um, not, not be, not have the body that she did because her mind and her spirit were so powerful. I, I was of this school of thought uh, that she could do anything. And I never, and I think we never said, okay, well, that's it. Aaron can just sit here and we can't do anything more. And always wanted to strive forward with her zest of life and came really, really tough in the last couple of years of her life. I don't know that she would have ever had peace. We sort of worried about her finding peace in her, her last years because she would never accept who she was. I don't think she was that unhappy. She was just always wired to push herself to be more than what her disability limited her in. I agree with that. And I kind of see it both ways. I kind of see her unwillingness to accept her condition and her limitations. Uh, and what she was able to accomplish was astonishing because of that. But it was also super painful. It was super painful for her on a daily basis to be unwilling to recognize her disability and her limitations. She just refused to acknowledge them and just saying, why can't I do this? And we, we supported that. It sounds terrible, probably, but I do think that Erin, as she had blinders on to really how she physically looked, and I think being around people with uh, disabilities was a visual reminder of, of her physical condition. My life work for the last 20 years or so has been focused on disability issues, completely inspired by my son, Samuel, who's now 22 years old. When Sam was about eight years old, I asked him, if you could take away your disability, would you take it away? And he said, no, immediately. He said he'd take away all the doctor's appointments and IVs and all the difficult parts of the medical interventions. But he, from a very early age, had that sense of disability pride. And I think in part that came from meeting adults with disabilities that had really cool full lives. So I think that my, my sense would be is if you don't have exposure to the disability rights movement in school, which most people don't learn about the disability rights movement, if you don't have the chance to meet other really amazing adults with disabilities and see them as role models or mentors or just examples, you don't necessarily cultivate that sense of disability pride. So you may choose to kind of separate yourself from what you perceive as being a person with a disability in society. And I think that's understandable when the prevailing attitudes around people with disabilities are very disheartening, you know, and very, and, and, and do not foster a strong sense of self. So, so someone like Aaron and other people with disabilities are fighting against this huge stigma around disability in society. So it's understandable perhaps that they might choose to not see themselves as, as a disabled person unless they feel that sense of disability pride. As Aaron's physical condition worsened, she moved into an assisted living facility on Long Island. This is Aaron's sister, Susan, describing the decision. She and the rest of her family then reflect on what they saw after. It was pre-COVID, so we were expecting her to just be sleeping there and living her life outside and being in Greenport for lunch and at my mom's for dinner and down to the beach with the kids and, and then back to the nursing home, which seemed like a, a tolerable 
balance of real world and nursing home world. And um, when she got increasingly shut down and we were shut out, it was really the worst challenge of her life. She was disabled by the situation and the location more than anything. And the people that made it work, it was iced coffees, which made her feel like a normal person outside, having pizza and beer come in, meant she didn't have to have one meal from the nursing home, gave her some peace. But a continuous thing that I think she demanded was that people respect her and provide dignity for her. And the aides that respected her and talked to her like a peer or a friend were so high on her on her list. Just she loved, like Sky, who you met at the at the celebration. Those were the ones that stood out, and the aides that would come in and treat her just like another patient and a baby with a diaper to be changed. She had no time for them. And in the nursing home at the end, there were three aides, two of them men, who just got her, took the time to get to know her, took the time to look beyond her disability, get her sense of humor, and simple things like giving her a shampoo, you know, shaving her legs, things that just made her feel like a woman and physically respected and that were dignity, you know, treated her with dignity. And that helped her survive the last two years in COVID lockdown. If she had just been treated like everybody else and just shoved into a room to a game and fed food and then, you know, left to just lay in her bed, she would have died in that nursing home. But she had a few people that carried her through from the inside and the outside. I was just getting frustrated with her because she was, I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't like this. Blah, blah. And so I said to her, why don't you, I said, you've got your computer, get on your computer and start telling your life. I said, I said, Aaron, wouldn't you just love it? People reading a story about you. Well, the lights went on. It's like, oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, God knows what she's going to put in that book. Aaron's challenges were just enormous on a daily basis, especially at the end. The focus is on what can you do? What can you do? Okay, we could write a small book on everything you can't do right now. You can't leave your room in the nursing home. You can't talk to people without a mask on, right? We could literally write thousands and thousands of things that she couldn't do. But the focus is, was always brought back to, well, what can you do? Well, why don't you write a chapter in your book? What's going on downstairs? Can you participate in bingo? Whatever it was, it was just like, what can you do? What can you do? What can you do? And kind of she's the one who drove that earlier in her life, right? She's the one that said, okay, I can't do this. What can I do? Or how am I going to do this? Is there another way? Is there something different? Is what can I focus on? And that's where I'm trying as a as her brother and as somebody in with daily struggles, Bob, to your point, everyone's got challenges. I could write a small book too on all the things I can't do. What can I do? Where, where am I going to focus my energy today? You know, instead of looking at the problem, look at look for opportunities for action and service. The one thing I can say is she was in palliative care in in um, the hospital out here. They were incredible with the care and with us, and we literally were with her when they really realized that she was not going to make it. The uh, doctor 
spoke to her and gave her all the details so she knew exactly where she was and what was going on. And she accepted it. And the doctor gave her every detail about what she's going to experience. And, of course, we were all with her. And um, it was beautiful. I hope I go the way she did. She just slid away, you know, and, and just happy that we were all there. It was a beautiful We all should have a beautiful ending, as she did. Thank you for listening to Seeing Aaron Haggerty, a WLIW-FM special program distributed in partnership with Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Chasing the Dream. Major funding from Chasing the Dreams provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund and Sue and Edgar Walkenheim III. The show was a production of Moving Up and was edited by Luke Robert Mason. The music is by Johnny Most Davis. Additional music that opened and closed the show by Joss Peach. I'm Bob McKinnon, your host of this program and of the podcast Attribution. Thank you to Dan Habib for his valuable perspective and of course the entire Haggerty family, Joan, Peter, Mary, Susan, and Lisa for sharing Aaron's story and life with us. Our final credit goes to you, the listener. May what you've heard today change what you see tomorrow.